the vast majority of ed tech is garbage. When I think about the ways that technology can be powerful and helpful and serve us instead of us serving the technology, I like to go back to some of the original thinkers, to folks like Seymour Papert, where when he was describing the promise of computers, he described it as a system for augmenting human thinking. And that's been a big guide for us is what are the ways in which the technology can... In this episode, Eli Luberoff, the CEO of Desmos, not only shares why he thinks most ed tech software doesn't make the grade, he also shares significant insight on what makes Desmos a thought leader in math education. Stick around while we chat about how ed tech can hinder learning and how ed tech can help learning. How a software company's guiding design principles can make you a better coach or teacher and why we need to be active and not passive when ensuring accessibility and equity in our classrooms. Cue up the music. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce from TapIntoTeenMinds.com. And I'm John Orr from MrOrr-IsAGeek.com. We are two math teachers who, together, with you, the community of educators worldwide who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark curiosity, fuel sense-making, and ignite your teacher moves. Are you ready there, John? Of course, Kyle, of course. We are honored to bring you this episode with Eli from Desmos. Now, before we get into our discussion with Eli, we want to let you know that if you're listening to this before Friday, September 25th, 2020, then you're cutting it close to joining us for our new PD offering on closing gaps with your grade two through grade 10 students. We built a self-paced nine module fully online course called the concept holding your students back. When students struggle during tasks, often it's because of missed key learning opportunities. Now, especially your students will have missed key learning opportunities from this last school year. In working with our own districts and our own students, we narrowed down those gaps to deficiencies in the area of proportional reasoning. In our new comprehensive PD course, we'll not only unfold the fundamental concepts for teaching proportional reasoning so that you can close gaps with your students, but we'll also show you how and give you the lessons and resources to use in your classroom to help make it all happen. If you're interested in learning more about registering, be sure to check out makemathmoments.com forward slash proportions. If you're listening after the fall 2020 registration close, you can still head to makemathmoments.com forward slash proportions to join the waiting list in order to get notified for your next opportunity to participate, which would uh, be next fall. That's right, John. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash proportions before registration closes this year. Hey there, Eli. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. We're extremely excited to chat with you today. How are things going on your end of the continent? I believe you're out in California, but correct me if I'm wrong. I am indeed out in California and very excited to be talking with you today. Uh, in the middle of some very troubling times, it is always, always good to be able to talk about math. Yeah. 
we are, as a society are definitely in troubling times. I think we've had some similar protests that's happening here in Toronto. You guys are having protests across your country. Kyle and I are from Canada. So yeah, definitely troubling times also in the midst of COVID-19. So 2020 is proving to be something that uh, we're fighting a battle on many fronts. So we're glad that you're here talking to us. Eli, I've met you a number of times. And actually, I, I wanted to share this story. Actually, you probably don't remember this, but I think I met you in 2012. And it was in Philadelphia at an NCTM national conference. It was my first national conference that I went to. And I was actually 2012 was like just when the iPad started hitting schools and I was on the hunt for something that could work on my iPad to bring back to my classroom because I was getting like a class set of these things and I wasn't sure what to do. And I remember walking the exhibitor's floor back then and I didn't realize I think it was you until later that I come across this like super young guy who's eager to share with me this graphing calculator that would work on my iPad. And I was like, is this going to work on my iPad? Because I'm sure you remember, Eli, back then everything was like flash-based. And I was like, is this going to work? And you're like, no, I've coded this whole thing in HTML5. And, and I, I didn't know what that was at the time. And, and you're like, uh, wow, sounds good. Yeah. And I was like, this is going to be great. And then I remember <laughs> that's all I was obsessed with for the rest of that conference is I think I met you back then. And as I said, I don't think... I knew it was you. It was just some young guy. And I'm later, I was like, that was you on the floor. So I've met you a number of times since then. But can you do us a favor, Eli, and let our listeners know a little bit about you and the company Desmos? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That has to have been me because there were about two of us at that point. And the other one lives in Indiana and definitely. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. And we actually got our start in Flash as well and made the switch to HTML5. And so I believe that I was very excited about that and very proud of it. Because if I was talking with you at the beginning of 2012, that was right after we launched. It was Valentine's Day of 2012 was the official launch day for our web-based graphing calculator. Oh, wow. Interesting. Fantastic. Yeah. Right? Right at the beginning. I remember right. I tell people that story and they're like, aren't there other things you should have been doing on Valentine's Day? And they're not wrong. There are. <laughs> so my background, I was a math and physics major in college, and I paid my way through college by tutoring. I would go out to Westport, Connecticut and tutor the kids of banking scions. And then I would come back to New Haven Public Schools, and I would volunteer tutor in, in those public schools and was just kind of flabbergasted by a couple different things. And so one of them was the wildly disparate access to resources. And the other was the insane cost of a handheld graphic calculator. And so my students in Westport would have, you know, two different graphing calculators and they would lose them and get a third and then a fourth of my students in New Haven. $100 is a prohibitive expense for a lot of families to this day. And so I was um, really quite bothered by that stranglehold that these calculators had and also by the inequity that they would cause. And over time, over the last eight years, I have come to realize that the inequity represented by graphing calculators is just the tip of the iceberg. And so we've been expanding our work in other ways to make sure that we're giving every single student the same kind of access and opportunity to the best of our abilities. So it was then, started it. It sounds like I was taking too much credit for the initial version of the calculator. I was just one of two people who was working on it at that point, and then a, a team that has grown enormously since. But yeah, our goal kind of upfront there was let's make something that is much, much, much better than what students have had access to from a calculator perspective because computers are insanely powerful. You were walking around with an iPad 
And the amount of computational power on an iPad is greater than on the original space shuttle that launched humanity into space. It's just absolutely nuts how much better technology than it was. And so we were saying, what would it look like if we could take advantage of that? If we weren't restricted to, you know, a set of 130 pixels wide by 80 pixels tall that you get on a handheld graphing calculator and instead have full color and a processor that's 4,000 times faster. So every single time that you type a letter, it can graph it and you can see the connection between these different representations of mathematics. It was in a lot of ways actually a technical experiment when we started it. We didn't know that there was going to be as much interest in it as there has been. But over the last eight years, now grown to see, I think last year it was almost 50 million people who used Desmos um, somewhere around the world over the course of that year. Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here. And I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision-makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12? Setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours, so don't wait head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. I will tell you, I vividly remember when I was teaching stats and I was in that high school classroom and having the typical, I don't want to name names here, but the typical graphing calculator that people bought, the handheld one, and how many times the night before a lesson I had to like go through the procedures to make sure that what I wanted to come out, let's say it was a regression to go through this series of button presses. And, and it made such little sense to me at the time and also to my students. It was really tough. So I know for me, that was like mind-blowing when I found out that you could do as much as you can do on the Desmos online version, but it just seems like more and more features coming all the time. So fantastic stuff. I appreciate that. Well, and it's one of the enormous benefits that we have is that We don't have to manufacture our own hardware. We're able to build on top of the incredible open source world of code and the work that browser manufacturers have been doing. When we launched, I don't even think Chrome was a thing yet. It could be that it was, it had just come out and then how far the web has pushed. And so we get to stand on those shoulders. And when it's a website, we can every single day we update it. It's always, always, always constantly changing in a way that you can't do when it's a hardware that you have to ship and have people ship back if it doesn't work right. So I love getting credit for a lot of that progress, but a huge amount of it has been from other folks and we just get on their shoulders and benefit from their incredible work. Yeah, that's awesome. And I want to dig a little bit more on that as we go here on how you guys are helping students and teachers and what that looks like and how you're addressing accessibility and equity and access. So we'll get into all of that. But before we do, Eli, we always ask one question. It's only the question that we ask all of our guests, and it has to do with memorable moments from your past in the sense that usually we say math class, 
what to, jolts in your brain as a memory that stands out for you. We talk to teachers and other professionals in education, and they'll tell us a memory they had from elementary school or high school or college or maybe even their workplace. But when we say math class, Eli, what just comes right to mind as a memory that's standing out to you? And why is it standing out to you in such a way? Yeah, I've got two memories from elementary school on exact opposite sides of the spectrum. So the first one, I'm in first grade. And I remember this question just so vividly because I remember the just deep feeling of injustice in my heart with this one where the teacher gave us a rectangle and said, divide this into four equal pieces and was expecting, you know, three vertical lines or three horizontal lines or maybe one vertical, one horizontal so that you'd end up with four rectangles that are all the same size. And what I did was I drew the two diagonals in. And I did that because I had a ruler and that was the only way I knew that I could get it exactly correct because I would have those two reference points on the opposite sides of the diagonals. And she told me I was wrong. I got no credit on that one. It was a graded assignment. And I was devastated. I was devastated. And I remember coming back in and proving that it was actually that the areas of those two triangles were the same, even though they looked like they were different by drawing in the vertical and the horizontal lines and seeing that each of them was half of the same rectangle. And nevertheless, she said, yeah, but they're not the same shape. And the thing I was asking for was same. And it was one of these moments that just stood with me. It's so important to acknowledge student thinking and creativity where it happens and marking something wrong when it's not wrong or um, not acknowledging which parts of it are right can be really damaging. This was 25 years ago, and I still remember it so clearly. The other story that I remember so vividly was my fifth grade teacher. This is a woman, Liliana Klatt, who I'm actually still in touch with. She's on Twitter. She sometimes likes what I tweet. I've featured her in a few of my talks just because she had such a deep impact on me. And I remember a month-long assignment that we did. It was over the course of the month around finding the circumference of the Earth using the same method that Eratosthenes did 2,000 years ago, looking at the difference in the length of a shadow of a vertically hanging rod in two different parts of the world. And the difference comes from the fact that there's curvature between those two. And what I remember about this one is two things. The first was that she just let us go. Like the amount of times that someone would come up to her and say, what next? What do I do? What do I do? And she would just say, I don't know. I have no idea. Try something. And over the course of a month, and then I remember the moment that my table had the epiphany of that it was the opposite interior angles was the way to figure out, to unlock the secret here. And I'm sure that she was nudging us. I was not aware of it, but it just felt like we were the ones who did it, like we succeeded. It was one of the first memorable experiences of us being the producers of mathematics instead of receiving wisdom from other people. And that was just incredibly, incredibly vivid to me and continues to stand out. And I also remember when I went back and visited her, this is when I was in college, and she said she was retiring to go be a photographer in New York. And I said, why? I remember that project so vividly. This was such an impact on my life. And she said, I'm not allowed to teach that project anymore. And that was actually the straw that broke the camel's back for me because there isn't time for it because we have two days associated with high stakes testing. And then the rest of the year spent preparing for that high stakes testing. And I'm not allowed to spend a month on a project anymore. And so I ended up doing a sad story sandwich, which wasn't my intention, but the, the middle of it, uh, I remember just so vividly that question and the effect that it had on me and feeling like I could be a producer of mathematics. I'm so happy that you've highlighted this. What I'm picturing in my mind is a true investigation, a true exploration. And 
obviously that must have had this lasting impact that you're sharing because now you've created a tool that essentially allows teachers to engage in that investigative approach to mathematics essentially every single lesson, right? And I think the sad part of that story with the testing and how high stakes testing oftentimes sort of restricts teachers from doing what maybe they know is the right thing to do in the classroom in order to follow protocol or follow procedure. To me, that's a really sad story. And I really hope that we continue to kind of work through that standardized test issue that seems to be really limiting and hindering so many teachers from doing great things in the classroom. So I appreciate you sharing that story. And clearly, that's impacting the work you're doing now. As we continue on here, we have another curiosity. And I'm wondering, and I know a lot of teachers, when I share the word Desmos, they sort of look at you like, huh, like, what is that? Like, what is a Desmos? Or you know, where did that <laughs> name come from? Is there an origin story you could share with us to help? Maybe it'll make a connection for people to easily remember it next time. Yeah, so there are two different origin stories to this. One of them completely fabricated by my colleague, Dan. He's told it a few times, and I remember walking at the California Math Conference behind a pair of folks, and one of them was telling this story to the other one, and they come out of it, and they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. It was absolutely wild to me. Two people I'd never met telling a story that wasn't true about my company. The story that he likes to tell, and so feel free to troll anyone you want with this, is that it's an anagram of the name of my favorite math teacher, Ed Moss, that he, you know, was an incredible teacher. And we know that that's not a true story because my favorite math teacher was Liliana Class from fifth grade from a second ago. The true story is that originally Desmos was a tutoring software company. This is from that period where I was paying my way through college by tutoring. And it was called Tutor Trove. And it was a horrible name for a company and an especially bad name <laughs> for a non-tutoring company. And so I decided that we needed a new name. And I did a contest for all of my friends and family. I looked at my bank account and I had like $205. And so I said that whoever comes up with the best name for this company, I'll take out for dinner with a budget of up to $205. And got hundreds and hundreds of responses, most of which were absolute garbage. But one of my friends had done one of those Wikipedia deep dives where he just kept clicking all the way through and he ended up at an article on desmology, which is the study of human ligaments, and found that it was based on this Greek word desmos that means link or connection or bond. And it just seemed like a pretty good name for a company and one that my dream was would be able to grow with us. I didn't want to be called a calculator because I knew even then that our aspirations were much bigger than just calculators. So it was a good general purpose. Sounds like it is spelled, sounds academic and was available. So desmos it was. Nice. I remember hearing you telling that story when I was last at the headquarters and uh, both stories, the fake story and the real story. But I'm always finding that interesting how you at such a, say, an early stage could see the future of this company, I think changing math education, because I think you guys are a leader in math education change, providing software, but also great models of education. And this brings up another memory for me that I remember saying to Mary Barassa, a fellow Canadian teacher at Ottawa, when we were both in San Francisco at your headquarters for a Desmos Fellow 
weekend uh, a couple years ago. And I remember saying to her while we were watching you speak one afternoon there, it's amazing how you are a tutor, but you don't have training in a teacher or teaching in classroom experience. But I found it so amazing that without being a teacher, you had such great ideas and almost like this great understanding of what makes good learning and great learning techniques. And I found that just to be amazing that you've got you who are learning how to become this great teacher and at the same time doing this little thing like running a huge company. So I often wonder about that. Like, what are you doing, Eli, to learn so much about being in the education space as well as, say, running this software company? And maybe you see them as the same thing. Like, I'm sure they are to you that you are in educational leadership, but also running kind of software at the same time. So how are you managing like both of those things? Yeah, well, I think I'm extraordinarily lucky by virtue of having founded Desmos that I'm now inside of our company surrounded by some of the most incredible thoughtful educators that you could ever hope to work with. We have more former teachers on our team than we have programmers on our team at this point as a technology company. And even some of the programmers are former teachers themselves. And so I get to learn by osmosis from these just incredibly thoughtful people inside of the company. But it's also you talk about the Desmos Fellows event and the incredible math teacher community on Twitter and just all around the world, every conference I go to. And so it's one of these where it would be hard for me to not pick up some of these best practices and these ideas just by virtue of the community that I get to spend my time with. And it always just blows my mind when a CEO or a leader at any level of a company doesn't spend a whole bunch of time with the people that are benefiting from their work, because how can you possibly learn? And so to me, it's almost the other direction. You know, I came into this with, I think, some very good ideas. I love mathematics, and I've thought really hard about it. And I was, I think, a good tutor back when I was a tutor. But the truth is that a huge number of my ideas were very poorly formed. And I've gotten to learn over now eight years. And I'm sure that I'm going to look back at my ideas of today and think that they're also were naive in, in various ways. I, for example, at the beginning thought that tutoring was the future. I read that one Bloom essay about how an hour of one-on-one -on -one time with a student results in two standard deviations of improvement, more than curriculum interventions, more than basically anything else that they could find. And my takeaway was like, yeah, absolutely. Tutoring is the future. This is what we should do for every kid. And it's taken me a fair bit of time to understand that tutoring is not actually the way that we achieve the goals we have at Desmos, which is supporting every single student, that that's public education, that not everyone has access to a tutor, that not all tutors are good at helping students form ideas, that so much of learning comes from the social elements of a classroom that you just can't get with one-on-one -on -one time. And so, yeah, I'll readily admit that I didn't enter this world with brilliant ideas about math education. It's been a process of learning, and there's still so much more to learn. Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like, I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple of months, maybe even a couple of years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, do us this huge solid. Uh, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. 
well, clearly you're a very reflective individual. And I'm going to say that that must have a lot to do with the current success of Desmos and how you continue to do great things. I mean, hanging with Dan Meyer and folks that like to teach and think like Dan as well, that's got to definitely up anybody's game. It doesn't matter who you are. So that is fantastic. And I think you bring up this amazing point that how could you possibly serve that community without hearing the challenges, the struggles that they're encountering in the classroom and really getting a good sense of how they're actually leading a day-to-day lesson. And obviously, you're paying close attention to that. So let's dive a little bit into this because it's interesting. We were just chatting with Dan Meyer recently, and that episode will be coming out just a couple of weeks before this one. So folks can go back and listen to that episode. And you know, we were chatting about EdTech and how sometimes technology and educational technology is just this, sometimes it's so shiny and you just get captivated by the idea of it and you often lose sight of whether it's actually going to help or hinder or just keep things the same, maybe just distract from the good work that you're already doing. So how do you see ed tech enhancing learning and where do you see ed tech maybe hindering learning in certain places? This is a fun question for me and this is the question where I'm going to make some enemies. I suspect, because my (laughs) summary is that I think the vast majority of ed tech is garbage. It's somewhere between useless and negative. I don't know if all the listeners on here are going to agree across the board, but when I think about the ways that technology can be powerful and helpful and serve us instead of us serving the technology, I like to go back to some of the original thinkers, to folks like Seymour Papert, where when he was describing the promise of computers, he described it as a system for augmenting human thinking. And that's been a big guide for us, is what are the ways in which the technology can act as an appendage and let you think more effectively and explore more quickly and communicate more effectively and robustly? And so much of technology inside and outside of the education space is not focused on that. It's focused on monitoring behavior and telling you that you're wrong without telling you why or telling you that you're right without helping you then build on top of that thinking. So much of it is just not ambitious enough from my perspective in terms of this idea of augmenting human intellect was the name of his paper. When I boil it down, there's three things that to me feel just concretely useful about technology when it's done right. So one of them is that technology can help us communicate much, much, much more effectively, hopefully. And inside of a classroom, this is a little bit less important because we love the idea of a teacher walking around and engaging in conversations, standing by a student or a group and hearing since so much happens in that kind of space. But we're feeling it right now, especially acutely during something like COVID, that it's really, really hard to get that same kind of interaction. And sometimes technology can be helpful. So you look at like our teacher dashboard, where you can see the responses from all of the class and you can start to see aggregated data and you can implement the five practices for effective discussion by pulling out examples of different approaches that students might have taken to a problem. So there's something around communication where done right, technology can be really helpful. And this is where we're communicating thinking as much as possible instead of a dashboard of checks and X's that tells you this student knows math and this student doesn't when we know that's such an oversimplified viewpoint. A second one is that computers can be really, really powerful for simulation. And so this is when you want to connect two representations together. This is, I'm curious if I set these initial conditions, what's going to happen? 
And in industry, this is so critical. Like imagine that you want to know what the effects are of making the wings on a plane 10% wider. Are you going to build another plane, fly it, and six months later know the answer? Or can you run this through a computer and have it do a lot of that work for you? And we see this in a lot of our work where instead of telling you this is going to work or this isn't going to work, we can show you the exact effects of setting initial conditions in a problem or sketching a trajectory of a person versus time. So that's a second one. And then a third one, which is related, is when technology lets you just explore a space of ideas much more efficiently. And so when you're just starting to graph, for example, you shouldn't be typing that into a computer. We want to make sure that you know that it's not magic and you're learning about what coordinates are and where the points go. And you have a function, you turn it into a table and then you plot those and then you connect them. But at some point, you would love to be able to say, okay, I get that. I know how to do that. Now I'm going to type an equation and a millisecond later, I can see the graph of that equation and I'm going to change it. And a millisecond later, I can see that change. And now I'm going to make this parameter adjustable. Process of exploration, it doesn't just take it from, you know, taking a day to taking a minute. It lets you explore spaces that you couldn't have otherwise. There's epiphanies that you're able to have when you're able to explore that much more rapidly that you just couldn't have. And so those are the three that get me really excited. It's the communication, the simulation, and the connected representations. And then finally, this idea of being able to explore much, much more efficiently and rapidly. Any tech that satisfies some of those needs I get very excited about, any that are about monitoring or surveillance or grading, those bum me out a little bit. And unfortunately, that's most of ed tech. I'm glad you brought these up because like you said, there's so much ed tech out there of kids just trying to game the system. And if I put in this number here, did I get it right? Did I get it right? Did I get it right? And so much of that ed tech hinders learning in the sense that it's all about just trying to see if I can get a credit or a score here on this program before actually understanding what I'm doing. And I really appreciate it that you guys have that exploratory option in your software, in the activities that you built, those three guiding ideas that computers can help with, because I think that a allows good teaching to happen. And I think that you guys are doing a really good job at that. that those lessons that you have created or allow teachers to create, it's I'm not just going to tell you if you're right or wrong. And, and another example is, you know, your multiple choice option is that so many tech companies would just build a multiple choice question and then have it auto check. But you guys have made the conscious choice of saying, you know what, we're not going to auto check this. We're going to let the teacher decide uh, if this is right or wrong. And we're also going to make the kid put in a why you chose this option instead of just which option did you pick? I really thought that that was thoughtful and it helps us teachers do good teaching in the classroom. So, so many good things that you've just outlined on what helps education and also outline those things on what's hindering education with some of the bad examples of ed tech. And I think, Eli, we're going to title this episode as what you just said there, that the vast majority of ed tech is garbage. That sounds like a great title. I <laughs> <laughs> like it a lot. Yeah. You know, your software is not only like teacher friendly in the sense it allows us to make good teaching moves in the classroom with your conversation tools and the way you guys have built this, but it's super easy to use. And I think that has been one of the game changers for your software versus so many other ed tech 
softwares out there is that it's just like there's no clunkiness to anything. And that is so important, I think, for teachers to use because the last thing a teacher wants in front of students is to look foolish. And so it sounds like you guys, or it feels like you guys have put a lot of thought into that. And because of that, and because of the aligning with great teaching practices, like, is there anything else that you guys are using for guiding principles when you're designing specifically the software that you guys are building? Yeah, we've got a few guiding principles that I can share for sure. A quick note on Desmos being very usable. This is deeply, deeply important to us. And not just because of what you mentioned, where teachers are faced with, you know, what is it, a decision every seven seconds, like anything we can do to reduce that burden, but also this deeply held kind of belief and sadness that technology and education doesn't hold itself often to the same bar that you have with other technology. And so Snapchat and Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and Netflix, they work so hard to make a really seamless user experience. And then you get into education and it doesn't look or feel like that. And I remember hearing that about why are we still using a handheld calculator from 30 years ago when phones have become so much more usable and it's still this, you know, you need a 400 page manual to use one of those tools. That's just a sadness where we tend to not hold the same bar in EdTech as we do for other tech, which makes me furious. But the honest, true reason why Desmos is really usable is because I am a very bad user of technology and I get made fun of for this all the time. Like I'm the one who 50 years prematurely is saying, get off my lawn when it comes to tech. I can't download apps onto my phone very effectively. I like paper books over Kindle. The team like never believes me and like I can't set up my computer to talk to my printer. What is Bluetooth? Like I'm a quite bad user of technology, (laughs) which is why like almost all of the teachers that we work with, the teachers on our team have to teach me about how to use tools as opposed to the other way around. And so it's meant that we've had to make a tool that is easy enough to use that even I enjoy using it, which I know it sounds crazy, but is pretty high bar. So just a kind of side note on that front. In terms of the values that guide our work, actually updating these, but there are five that guide us. So the first one is do no harm, which we're planning to upgrade because that's a little bit too passive in our mind in these times of, especially now, but I think always, that just avoiding harm is not sufficient to be on the right side of systematic change. But that's our first one. Our second one is trust teachers which we're also planning to change for actually a similar reason, which is that that lets us off the hook. It's, again, a little bit too passive, and we want to change that one to something that is more collaborative and and kind of active voice in terms of our responsibility of helping make classrooms what we think that they should be. The other three we're going to keep, I think, as they are. And so the third one is design for real classrooms, and this one has a number of different pieces to it. So one of them is our deeply held belief that classrooms are actually a great structure for learning, that this idea of being in a room with peers and with an expert who can help guide a discussion, and the peers aren't all studying at exactly the same preparation as each other, that that's actually really great to have a heterogeneous classroom led by a strong teacher. So that's one, and that's one that's kind of controversial in Silicon Valley. There's a lot of folks who are saying, no, a classroom should be 10,000 people watching a video lecture at the same time. Not how we feel about it. We love classrooms. We love classrooms. So design for real classrooms, but also design for the real constraints that classrooms face. And so this is, you know, math class periods are really short. They're also different from place to place. And so having this assumption that 
you're going to have an hour and a half when you don't is important. Classrooms often don't have reliable technology. The internet cuts out. The devices are bad. We put a lot of work into making sure our file size is very, very small and our software is reliable, even in those conditions, that it can work on lower powered devices like Chromebooks, which we love, by the way. So yeah, design for real classrooms is the third. The fourth one is design for delight. And this gets back to that same point that often education software is pretty utilitarian. You know, it's got to do its job and it doesn't matter if it's fun to use and it doesn't matter if it's easy to use and it doesn't matter if it's beautiful. And we try to, where we can, introduce delight to say that learning is delightful and the technology that matches it should be delightful as well. And then our fifth one is uh, works every time. And this one is a little bit of a counter to some of the technology ethos of move fast and break things was famously Facebook's mantra for a long time. And that when you break things in a math classroom, you're breaking learning that can happen. And if you've got something that goes wrong just 1% of the time in an app, that means that one out of every three classrooms is going to be affected by it and derailed and the learning won't happen. And so we want to hold ourselves to a higher bar than a consumer product of just working, just working every single time. That also plays into a little bit of our theory that technology should be really kind of understanding of what you type. And so this is one where inside of our tool works every time translates to if you write an equation, we're going to try to understand it as best as we can. We're going to try to avoid throwing errors. We're going to not be really strict about, man, you added a space here, or you didn't type y equals before writing the sign of x. There's a whole bunch that we think is the responsibility of the classroom to enforce norms, and here's exactly how we want to write things. And the responsibility of the technology is to just work. We want it to just work without question. So those are our five guiding company values. I love those. Those five are actually, I'm looking at them and I see them as being really helpful, really for anyone. I'm picturing myself in a PD role right now where I'm doing a lot of workshops. And if I followed those five principles, I think I would be making sure. And if I could check off all five of those things for my next workshop or my next session or PLC with teachers, I feel like I would be well on my way to a really worthwhile experience. So I, I like those. I love how you're going to be a little less passive on those first two. I thought they were great as is, but I like how you're always striving for more. So that's great. So we have do no harm, trust teachers, design for real classrooms, design for delight, and it works every time. I love all five of those. And Something I'm also hearing in this conversation, we know this about Desmos, we know this about you and the team at Desmos, that right now there's some pretty devastating things going on in the world. And for some people, up to about a week ago, it was COVID-19. But then also, our attention has been drawn to a problem that has been around for decades, centuries, right? And it's this idea, we all know about the killing of George Floyd and the protests going on right now. We know that Desmos is making huge strides in the field and the area of accessibility and equity. Like, I'm wondering, can you speak to that at all? I know this particular instance, the George Floyd situation has really hit home for you. We heard that at the beginning of the episode. I just want to open that floor. I want to give you an opportunity to speak your thoughts on that. And how is Desmos trying to help address access and in particular equity issues? Yeah, really, really grateful for that question. One of the things that I've learned over even just the last week is that 
entering into spaces and not bringing up these topics of violence against Black people and violence against Brown people, when this is something that is so just on top of people's mind, uh, is itself making the space quite uncomfortable for those folks. And so I'm really grateful that you bring that up. And it's something that we've been learning quite a bit about. If I had to describe my evolution, I think initially this idea of make every student, help every single student learn math and love learning math is our company mantra. And originally, I thought that the way to do that was to make sure that every student had access to it. And so we make our software free and we make it so that it works on every device, including low powered devices, and we make it usable and we just kind of put it out there for everyone to use. And that's enough. And what I'm learning is that that is too passive, that we can't actually achieve equity and we can't build the society that we want if we're just like putting it on a platter and saying, hey, come and get it to everyone because different people have such different access, such different opportunity. And such different life experiences. We're seeing this with the COVID crisis in an enormous way that it's disproportionately affecting black and brown communities. That disproportionately the missing learning that we're going to see this coming year is impacting those same communities that not everyone has a computer at home and not everyone has connectivity at home. And this is the result of just, as you said, years, decades, centuries of kind of systematic inequity and oppression. And that the only way that we can fight that is by trying to be proactive in the other direction. Yeah, you can't just be not racist. You have to be anti-racist if you want to get to the kind of society that you want. And so we're early in this work. We've been putting a lot of effort in the curriculum that we've been building, making sure that we're recognizing identity and we're recognizing that unless students see themselves and see themselves reflected in the mathematicians that we highlight and in the math that we are showing, it's going to continue to be a space that is more welcoming to some and kind of naturally continuing just this cycle of saying, this is not a space for you. This is not a subject for you that we really want to fight. And lastly, we're just trying to learn from the folks who've been so, so thoughtful in this space for years and working with organizations, nonprofits, reading the work of Rochelle Gutierrez and others, just to make sure that we're kind of continually on the forefront of how to be anti-racist in our work. I'm glad you said that. I find it so interesting, like the way you have said that it's not enough to just say our software is here for free, come get it, that passiveness. I feel like that's like the same approach as an educator. If I'm in the classroom and I'm saying, I treat everyone the same, therefore I'm not a racist or I'm not part of this issue in just putting your head in the sand. And I think that passivity, it's around us so much that if I just say I'm not part of it, it's not good enough. It's not doing the opposite, like you said, is that it's not good enough to just say I'm not racist, I have to be anti-racist. As educators, we have to not say we're treating everyone the same. We have to actually say the opposite. We're treating everyone as they need to be treated or we're treating everyone as we're going to help them get what they need to get. And I like how you pointed out Guderre's work about like uh, identity and seeing themselves as a student of mathematics, of learning mathematics. I think that's so important. And Kyle and I have also been learning alongside some great educators that have been sharing their work, like uh, Hema Kadai has been doing some really good work. She had a, a session in our virtual summit last year that was really great. And so we are on that journey too. And I think that, like you said, it's not good enough to just say or avoid that conversation. Like, I'm glad that we brought that up here in this conversation because it's happening right now at the time of this recording and and happened before all this too. 
getting ready to wrap up here, Eli, because we're conscious of your time. I'm so thankful for you in this conversation and glad that you were here. And uh, hopefully we can uh, spread the good word of Desmos and all the great things you guys are doing. And before we wrap up, is there anywhere that you'd recommend people to go read more about any topic that you're interested in or learn more about Desmos? Yeah, I would say just go to our homepage, open it up, use it if you've never used it before. Let us know what works and what doesn't. This is how we get better. There's a couple resources that we've been working on. So there's a learn.desmos.com website that will walk you through some of the different features that we have. But mostly, I would just recommend to folks to become part of the community. We've got a Facebook educators group. We're really active on Twitter. I've got my distaste of each of those platforms for reasons that won't come as a surprise to people who've lived this last hour. But nevertheless, I think community and communication is important. And the math community is one of the most remarkable that I've ever been a part of just in terms of how open and welcoming and sharing and giving of time and expertise it has been. Of course, every community can always improve, but this is one that I'm especially proud to be a part of. Well, that's awesome there, Eli. We so appreciate you coming out and definitely those links you've shared. Desmos.com, the main page is great, but I'm telling you, if you are in the classroom right now and you have not been to teacher.desmos.com, dive into any activity that's up there as a featured activity right now. Just give it a go and I promise you will not regret it. So thanks so much for all the work you do, Eli, with you and your team. We appreciate you. The math community appreciates you and we hope you have an awesome day and uh, we get to catch up with you sometime soon at uh, one of these what do they call them? Face-to-face conferences one day soon, hopefully. What a novel idea. (laughs) Have a great one. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. We want to thank Eli again for spending some of his time with us to share his ideas and insights with us and with you, the Math Moment Maker community. Before you head off, we just want to remind you one more time about registering for our new course, The Concept Holding Your Students Back, Unlocking Key Understandings in Proportional Relationships to Reach Every Student. In this nine-module comprehensive PD course, we'll not only unfold the fundamental concepts for teaching proportional reasoning so you can close gaps with your students, we'll also show you and give you the lessons and resources to use in your classroom to make it all happen. If you're interested in learning more about this fully online, self-paced course, be sure to check out makemathmoments.com forward slash proportions. Now, if you're listening after registration closes, again, that's September 25th, 2020, you can still head over to makemathmoments.com forward slash proportions and join the waiting list so that you get a heads up well in advance of our next cohort, which will be in the fall of 2021. In order to ensure you don't miss out on new episodes as they come out each week, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, please share the podcast with a colleague and help us reach an even wider audience by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and tweeting us at Make Math Moments on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook. Show notes and links to resources and also full transcripts from this episode can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode nine five. Again, that's makemathmoments.com forward slash episode ninety five. All right, my friends. Well until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And a big high five for you. Ooh.
if you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, an accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle, walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook after completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.